Welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me as usual. We're doing a double header tonight, right, Darcy? Oh, yeah. Um, because Sarah had technical difficulties for the 500th time. Darcy's <laughs> so sick of this, I can tell you that right now. Uh, well, why why do we like not figure out how to get our phone call working earlier today? That was me. Uh, well, some of us need to be backing up our um, episodes, so... I'll take responsibility mm. for that. Yeah. But for this one, yeah. I got started editing and got about a third of the way through and then went to pause to go to the bathroom and I came back and hit the save button after I came back. Not I should have hit it before, but anyway, pro- same thing probably would have happened. But then it said, error, file not found. So it saved That's yours crazy. that I posted, that I pasted in your track, but my track got <laughs> deleted and was completely gone. On my own recording. Sucks. So I don't know how it happened. And I don't know. But it just tells me that I need to save my individual tracks. And then we'll have copies of both so that we don't have to go through that again. But anyway, yeah. we're re-recording this episode, which is kind of a, it's kind of a bummer because they're never as good the second time around. But this. I'm a great actress. I don't <laughs> right? know what you're about. This is brand new information. But we're going to talk about Ariel Castro today. Mm. So this is a really, really fascinating thing to me. And these types of cases are one of my favorite parts of true crime. Mm -hmm. Because I find them so interesting that people could capture and keep people without killing them for so long of a period of time. Which is why this is very similar to our cases of J.C. Dugard and the one that we did earlier with the Fritzl case. Yeah, But let's jump right in. May 6th, 2013, Cleveland, Ohio. A phone call comes in from a woman who says she's Amanda Berry. She claims she was kidnapped for 10 years. Jeez. So Amanda was initially kidnapped and disappeared the day before her 17th birthday. On the phone, she claims there were other girls in the house where she was trapped. Gina de Jesus walking home from school was snatched as well, and Michelle Knight, who wasn't even listed as missing, according to police. Mm -hmm. But police immediately go to the location, and at that time, they found and arrested the owner of the home. He was a school bus driver named named Ariel Castro. This is a survival story, though, much like the ones that we talked about earlier with J.C. Dugard and Elizabeth Fritzel. And we're going to kind of unwrap it a little further. Ariel Castro was born July 10th, 1960 in Puerto Rico to Pedro Castro and Lillian Rodriguez. Castro's parents divorced when he was little and he moved to the mainland U.S. with three siblings and his mother, the family settled into Reading, Pennsylvania, or Reading. Is it Reading? I think it is Reading. Okay. Because it's R E A D I N. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I yeah, always I think, think of it reading. like Reading Railroad from Monopoly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was thinking of Reading Rainbow. And then they eventually, Cleveland, where his father and some other family members had also settled. Castro had nine siblings in total, which I can hardly imagine. That really puts your family life into a very, very different sort of a situation than if you come from a smaller size family, as you probably know. You had a bunch of siblings, though, right? I did. At one time, there were nine of us, stepsisters and half and whole and the whole deal. And it was a little bit crazy and chaotic. We always had a great big, huge country house or whatever. But at one point, we were in an apartment temporarily in a, I think it was a three-bedroom apartment while we were waiting for our house. And it was all the boys in one room and all the girls in the other room. And then the parents had one room. And it was just (sighs) insane. I can't imagine. It was just me and my sister growing up in... I didn't even like her, so. Yeah, yeah. But you can imagine it's a very different situation when you've got kids everywhere versus if there's mm-hmm. just one or, one or two of you. It, it makes things very different with food, with clothing, with special occasions, with yeah. fun, like with getting out of the house, with chores, with everything. Everything is very different when you have a large family. Yeah. In any case, Castro ended up graduating from Cleveland's Lincoln West High School in 1979. In the 80s, he meets Gramilda. Great name, right? Figueroa, 
who moves into the house across the street from Castro's family. And they start dating with both he and his family living in one house and she and her family living in the house across the street. Okay. So it's a kind of a fam- fa- extended family type of a situation, which I believe was not all that common, especially for families that have immigrated here in recent times yeah. from like Puerto Rico or from other countries. And they were just doing their best to kind of provide a family support system so that everyone could afford to be in the country and get good jobs and, edu- and education and, and so forth. Right. Castro and Figueroa eventually moved to their own house uh, on 2207 Seymour Avenue in 1992. That's that's the house that she called from, right? Yes. Okay, wow. Okay. The house is a two-story, 1,400-square-foot home with four bedrooms and one bathroom. There is also a 760-square-foot unfinished basement that is not included in that square footage, but that's a pretty right. large basement, that's a, right? That's a good size that's basement. It's the size of yeah. like a one bedroom apartment. So it's got some significant space in the basement. Evidently, the house was built in 1890, which, you know, very historic type of a right. thing, which would have been, I'd be interested to see the interior of that and if there was anything left in that because it had been remodeled in 1956. Yeah. During that time, Castro was known to have been horribly abusive to Figueroa. He beat her. He broke bones. He also caused a blood clot in her brain that resulted in a tumor that was inoperable. Oh, my gosh. So he hit her so hard and damaged her so significantly that it caused a blood clot to happen in her brain. Wow. He was also known to have thrown her down the stairs and cracked her skull. Jesus. Yeah. So he was very, very abusive. And this resulted in an arrest in 1993, but no indictment. Hmm. So either she decided she didn't want to testify or she convinced him to drop the charges. Right. I don't know. But she stayed with him after that. Um, she didn't move out until... that's very common. Seriously. But she did not move out until 1996. Okay. And at that time, she was awarded custody of the couple's four kids. Okay. Now, it's not really clear as to whether these two were married or whether they just stayed together as boyfriend and girlfriend. Mm-hmm. But after she moved out with the couple's four children, she there were repeated reports of continued threats and physical abuse, including charges filed in 2005, which alleged abuse and kidnapping his own two daughters on multiple occasions. And it's interesting that it's just the daughters. So. So he had two sons and two daughters. That's what it sounds like. Okay. Um. This poor woman eventually died in 2012 from complications caused by the brain tumor. Jeez. So it just sounds like she had a really rough time of it in, in the, her later years in life in particular. But mm-hmm. during all of this, Castro worked as a bus driver for the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. That's terrifying. Right? So he's ferrying young children around every single freaking day until he got fired. So I have a question. So obviously a school system is going to do a background check, but because he did not have any indictment in that abuse charge, that it wouldn't show up. Okay. Nope. Which mm. is scary, right? Yep. Um, it's not really clear when exactly he was fired, but the reasons include bad judgment, quote unquote. And here are some of the things he did that made it bad judgment. One was making illegal U-turns with kids on the bus. How do you make a U-turn in a bus? Uh, I don't know. That would that would be a tough one. <laughs> Two, using the bus to go grocery shopping. Three, leaving kids on the bus while he went to lunch. <laughs> and four, going home to take naps while leaving the bus unattended. Sounds like a stellar employee. He's like just really bad at <laughs> yeah. his job. Yeah. But I mean, he was making like eighteen dollars and ninety one cents per hour, though. So I mean, that sounds like he's making a decent salary, right? Good. For someone who's not, yeah. you know, educated or anything like that. But despite this, he is in financial trouble, and the home on two two oh seven Seymour Avenue is in foreclosure. There are evidently three years of unpaid real estate taxes that had kind of built up, Whoa. causing him to have to put the house into foreclosure or let the house go into foreclosure. So he kind of had nothing to lose either. Like, it sounds like he was in a situation, like, depressing kind of a thing. Uh, And he was like, okay, well, F it. I'm just going to do whatever I want. Like the end of my rope. Yeah. (sighs) So let's talk about the victims. We're going to set the scene. 
It's Cleveland, Ohio in the 90s and 2000s, which is typical American industrial city. It is middle to lower class families, lots of poverty, lots of crime, lots of factories and mill workers. There's drug activity intermixed with families just trying to raise their kids and survive, right? Hmm. Michelle Knight grows up in this, and she was born April 23rd, 1981. She was kidnapped August 23rd, 2002. She had a terrible home life, though, and she lived in a car for a while. There was no furniture in her house, no stove. They were very, very poor, and her family had lots of, lots of kids. Everything was traumatic for them in their house. There was sexual and physical abuse. There was neglect, and there were male relatives that were sexually abusing Michelle mm. starting at age 12 until she was about 14 when she got fed up and ran away from home. Wow. Which I don't blame her. I would probably have done the same thing. She just felt like she was safer on the streets, which is terrifying. Yeah. Right? She was cold and she was hungry and she was scared and she slept under park benches and lived in a garbage can at one point. She stole blankets to be able to keep herself warm. And she was really small. She was like four foot two. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So she could actually wedge herself into small places and hide in garbage cans yeah. and under bridges, etc. The one thing that she used to get comfort from was going to church. She went to this particular Baptist church, and even though she was dirty and smelly, she still went, and they had a 2 p.m. meal service that she would go each day to at least get one meal. Mm-hmm. But during one of these meals, a family member saw her and called her dad. This is, yeah, not good. He immediately picked her up and forced her to go back to school where she was relentlessly bullied. She was shoved into lockers, pushed downstairs, called ugly, and essentially isolated from everyone else because she was considered an outcast. Mm -hmm. No one wanted to be friends with her, and she felt just super alone. And, I mean, I think many of us have been in that same position where, like, Mm -hmm. you just feel like nobody likes you, but still, to be shoved into lockers and pushed downstairs just sounds... Awful. And I mean, regardless of what high school you went to, it, all, it seems like every high school had a hierarchy that was based on socioeconomic status. Right. right? And if she was so, like, poor. If she's at the and... very bottom of that, that it just sounds terrible. Yeah. Yeah. It was just not a good situation for this young woman mm-hmm. in either at home or at school. Mm-hmm. She actually then befriends and meets this older guy who she ends up dating and she gets pregnant. Surprise, surprise, which, again, happens all too frequently in some of these bad situations. She has a little boy that she names Joey. She leaves the child with her mother and her mother's boyfriend, but her mom's boyfriend is super abusive as well. He gets hammered and grabs the baby by the leg and fractures (gasps) its leg. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, which is just awful. She takes the baby to the hospital and social services takes Joey and puts him into foster care, which sucks. But in this sort of a situation, I mean, thank God for Joey. I mean, can you imagine what might have happened to that little boy if the stepdad had been allowed that Right. That's the thing. Like, it's terrible that the child was taken away from the mother because it wasn't the mother. It was the environment that the mother lived in. You know, that's just terrible. If it's going to save that baby. Right. Right. Um, In any case, August 23rd, 2002, we're going to fast forward to that point. It's a super hot day, and Michelle was working to get her son back. She was on her way to a case management meeting. She was walking because she obviously didn't have a car Mm -hmm. when she got lost. And, of course, Ariel Castro is lurking and overhears her ask someone for directions. Okay. He then jumps in and says, hey, I'll take you. And she gets into his car Mm. for two reasons. Number one, she's desperate and needs to get to the meeting that she has already reorganized a couple of times. She really wants to get her baby back. And number two, Ariel Castro was the father of one of her friends from school. So he was like familiar. Yeah. So he wasn't a stranger. And he put her at ease by talking about his daughter and just kind of reminiscing about some of the things that she would know about familiar names and faces. So she was obviously, her guard wasn't up. Right. And then instead of taking her to court, he takes her to his house where he pulls her out of the car and shoves her into a room and tells her she is not leaving. 
for a Gosh. very long time. And of course, she's tiny. She's like yeah. four foot two. I mean, he probably easily overpowered her as yeah. well. Oh, yeah. Which is also just terrifying. He then tells her to get undressed. And she drops to the floor and begs to be let go when he rips up her son's picture and tells her she's <gasps> never going to see him again. Oh. So he's like doing this ultimate mind games with her. And it's just awful. He covers her mouth, ties her up, masturbates, rapes her, and then wraps her up with extension cords and sticks a sock into her mouth. Eventually, he takes her from the upstairs bedroom that he held her in initially to the basement where she lost all track of time and was essentially confined to a pole in the middle of the floor with a motorcycle helmet over her head. Jeez. Yeah, just uh, so that she can't scream or, like, hear anything. It just probably was absolutely horrifying. And she doesn't he, know what time it is. She has no night. idea what yeah. is going on. Yeah. He brings her food. And remember, this is this unfinished 700 and some odd square foot basement space, which God knows how much light was in there and, and yeah. what was down there. But he brought her food and routinely raped her three to four times a day. God. He also left a radio on super loud to mask this, any sounds that she might potentially make. The house that they were staying in was basically boarded up and looked kind of abandoned from the outside. Mm-hmm. So I don't necessarily think that there were people around it that were trying to see what was going on in that house anyway. Right. And then when you add the factor of now he's got this loud, loud radio playing, I, I just, it's it's not a good thing for her like she's yeah she's nobody's coming to look, look around no and yeah. since she's homeless and kind of this routine runaway anyway people are not going to be on the lookout for her right which is even scarier and it doesn't sound like she had that many people at home that really cared about her no so they probably just thought she took off and ran away mm-hmm. again or, or you know she was strung out on drugs or she had run off with a boyfriend or something there just wasn't no one reported her missing yeah the next victim that we're going to talk about is Amanda Berry. And she was born April 22nd, 1986, and kidnapped April 21st, 2003. So okay. she's about 17. We look back to the date of the kidnapping for Michelle Knight. She was kidnapped August 23rd, 2002. She is 16 at this time, and it was right before her 17th birthday. She has a part-time job at Burger King. She was very responsible. She was a homebody, but she also loved fashion. She had gone out and gone to work that day, and it was pretty uneventful when she saw a red car pull up and ask if she needed a ride home after work. She recognized the guy, so she said yes, and it was Ariel Castro. Um, She had gone to school with his daughter as well, and he asked, just like he did with Michelle, if she wants to say hi to his daughter, and just he kind of puts her at ease by talking about his daughter. Right. So Amanda's like, yeah, sure. I haven't seen, you know, your daughter in a while. Let's go over and say hi to her. So he drives her to his house, pulls out, gets out and shows her around and then takes her upstairs where he says, my roommate is in here. And obviously it's Michelle Knight in that room and not a roommate. Um, he shows her through a peephole a woman sitting on a bed watching TV. And this is Michelle Knight. And he's saying that's his roommate? Yeah. And he, ha- he just has so, a peephole into his roommate's bedroom? Yeah. Super okay. creepy. And clearly he's told Michelle that she is not allowed to say a peep. You right. know, he's threatened her probably. He then takes this poor Amanda Berry into another room and rapes her. Mm. He eventually does the same thing with this one as he had done with Michelle. He tapes her ankles. He confines her he puts a helmet on her head and leaves her in the dark basement where she screams and cries meanwhile unlike michelle knight's family amanda barry's family is actually looking for her when she didn't come home they knew something was wrong and they immediately called the police Hmm. and filed a missing persons report but at this point castro has two girls chained up in two separate bedrooms and he's sexually abusing both of them in this boarded up, creeped Jesus out, Christ. scary ass house. And no one knows the better. It looks abandoned from the outside. And even the doors are nailed shut. And there's plexiglass over the windows on the inside. 
So he even filed down and sawed off screws and nails and everything so that they could not possibly get the plexiglass or the boards off to get out. God. Even worse, Ariel looks like an average dude. He dresses well, he takes care of himself, and he keeps on doing his bus driver job, appearing like nothing's out of the ordinary until he got fired. But to his neighbors, he was this friendly, outgoing musician who played in bands. He was a bass player who had an ear for music. He was super normal and could repeat songs after hearing them only once. But other people, including the people that he played in the band with, said he was just a little bit off. Yeah. He would be joking one minute and then angry with everyone in the next kind of had like a trigger temper on that kind of a thing and no one knew of him having family but some of them knew about his violent relationship with his former spouse Mm -hmm. and they knew that he was now living alone one of the things that was interesting is a lot of people described his eyes as being very deep and black like he had no soul that's such a common thing but you always hear it like in hindsight yeah I, like yeah. i wonder what it's so like to creepy. see that just like on an everyday person just walking around and be like oh that person has really black eyes yeah no that's super creepy yeah um but amanda's family actually pleads on the news and they passes out they pass out flyers but no one seems to know michelle is missing she's mm-hmm. the first one that was taken police are searching homes in the nearby areas in a grid pattern so they can try to lo- narrow down locations In the meantime, Amanda is chained to a radiator and is allowed to watch TV, and she sees stories about herself on the news. Gosh. Imagine. The psychological torture of that is just... Right? Yeah. But she's hopeful that she's going to get out because of that. Mm Mm-hmm. The girls are actually kept chained in different rooms with old kind of gross mattresses and buckets to go to the bathroom. Mm. Once a week, they're allowed to bathe, sometimes less but they're actually forced to shower with him if they want to bathe. Oh, God. Right? How gross is that? He also used food as a weapon and sometimes would go for a week without feeding them. Wow. And in the meantime, he's raping them three to five times a day this whole time. So the guy is just, like, super creepy and super, like, violently sexual and sadistic and just gross. You know what else he did was he took Amanda's cell phone and called home and told her mother that Amanda ran away with him and that they were married. What a monster. Right? Her mom, in the meantime, is like, oh, my God, I just want to hear her voice. Let me hear my daughter's voice. And he hangs up. Police... She immediately hands over the phone to police and tells them about it, reports it and everything, and they try to track Amanda... But this, the technology back then was really kind of in the initial stages. Mm-hmm. And they could narrow the location down to a 30 to 40 block radius. That's pretty big okay, area so is, still. Yeah, yeah. But police then began searching that area very extensively. And the phone is never used again. Ugh. Weeks go by and the family of Amanda is frantic. And then another girl disappears. The last of the three victims, Gina de Jesus, was born Georgina de Jesus, uh, February 13th, 1990, and she was kidnapped April 2nd, 2004. So, again, a year after Mm -hmm. the other one. So, Gina, as she's known, is happy, kind, sweet, shy, soft-spoken, and loved dancing and skating. She was a huge fan of Selena and wanted to be a lawyer when she grew up. She was from a tight-knit, loving family who was a little bit tight on the money, but she had a pretty happy childhood regardless of this fact. She was 14 at this time, and she lives on the west side of Cleveland. Her mother was extremely street smart and taught her daughter this too, but despite all of this, Gina was still deceived by Ariel Castro. She had been walking home from school with a friend, talking about what they wanted to do for the weekend coming up, and the friend asked her if they could hang out over the weekend and said that she was going to call her mom from a payphone to see if they could hang out, but the girl's mom said no, and the two girls head in separate directions. Right after that, Ariel Castro pulls up and offers Gina a ride, and 
like the other two. She knew one of his daughters from school. And he actually asked her to help find the daughter this time and said that he, she was missing and she needs, he needs her help. And, of course, Gina agrees and goes with him to look for his daughter. He asked her to help move a speaker in his house at this time as well. So, like, they go back to his house for whatever reason because he's like, let me check to see if she's there. Yeah, he's like, maybe well, she came here. home or something. I have this speaker that I really need help with. Can you help me? And, of course, she's like, sure. She steps into the house and he starts touching her and she tells him hey knock it off i'm not down with this and he tells her she has to leave but she cannot go through the same door that she came in through which mm. again super weird mm -hmm. he takes her into the basement then and chains her to a pole and turns up the radio so same thing like he easily overpowered her she was you know her guard was down because she thought this was you know the, the father of a schoolmate yep when, when she didn't show up at home, her family started looking, and they knew she was very reliable and would never run away. But the police and the family start scouring the west side, and it's exactly the same neighborhood where Amanda Berry disappeared. So Whoa. everyone is freaking out at that point. The Berry disappearance had happened one year prior, in the same month even, and... Police are positive at that point that these cases have to be related. Yeah. So meanwhile, in this house, the girls hear noises from each other and are wondering, you know, what the heck is going on? So at this point, they don't know. Well, so Amanda knows about Melissa, but they don't all know about each other, right? Or Michelle, not Melissa. Um, I think they know very little. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get into that in just a second. But... um. Gina says that Castro immediately started sexually abusing her, just like the other two. And the, the girls see the news, and they see each other, and they actually ask Castro, like, who are these other people? Like, they full-on just ask him. Oh. And he admits everything. Whoa. He even tells them what the other girls' names are. So what he also tells them, though, is that their families don't care and will, won't miss mm. them. So your families don't love you. They're not looking for you. They don't care. Even though these girls know for a fact that's not true because two of them right. saw news stories about themselves because he's, he's letting them watch TV. So I don't, he, evidently he thought his word was enough to get them to shut up and believe him or, or whatever. He was very, very persuasive and mm -hmm. domineering. So I think that they just were like, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, sure. Yeah. But they knew in their hearts yeah. that that wasn't true. Michelle Knight was the only one to fight back against Castro's abuse. She became pregnant multiple times, and he would physically abuse her until she lost the fetus. Oh, my God. She seemed to have borne the brunt of the abuse in, in quite a significant way. He starved her. He beat her. He jumped on her stomach. Oh, my gosh. Now Michelle is unable to have children because she was abused so badly during this time. But Castro didn't just physically abuse him. He played mental games with them as well, like making them play Russian roulette with him. <gasps> and in the meantime, he's kind of bringing home food from these gigs that he's playing. He's still doing musical gigs during this whole time like running around playing the bass with his band. And he would bring food home from some of these. And the band thought it was kind of weird that he was bringing home so much leftover food because they didn't think he had any family or, like, right. kids or anything. But it was odd that he was constantly bringing home such large portions of food. But they didn't say anything. The girls, after a period of time, were allowed to leave their rooms, but only for a very short time to do chores and he was always very specific about what they were allowed to leave for and, like, the rules behind what would have to happen when they left their rooms. He would not let them talk to each other. He isolated and separated them all and played them against each other. So, like, mm -hmm. if one did something bad, he would punish the rest of them and that sort of thing as well. He also lied to them about each other, saying stuff that implied that the other girl didn't like her. I mean, he was just playing a lot of really manipulative mind games with them and lying to them. But he would also constantly check on them to make sure that they were not talking to each other. That was really, mm -hmm. really important to him. And he would punish them with no heat, no lights, and no food if they did something God. that he perceived was wrong. Like the three basic essentials for living. Yeah, he took a while. yeah. And in the meantime, he stops 
and talks to Amanda's mom, who's out leading this vigil to find her daughter. He takes a flyer, goes to these vigils, stands with volunteers, just disgusting. This is why they send, like, police and detectives to those things, for this reason. Yeah, yeah. So Ariel has a drinking problem, according to the girls and other people that knew him, and this drinking fueled his anger, and that's when he would do some of the Russian roulette games. He would go first, and they would not know whether there was one bullet or two bullets left, but it was just, like, this really manipulative, scary mind game that he was playing with them. They were all in restraints periodically and sometimes allowed out of the restraints, but the doors all had padlocks and chains. Sometimes he would leave one door open to kind of test them to make sure that they weren't going to leave. He had mirrors everywhere, and sometimes members of his family came over, and they could actually hear him while the three were chained in the basement. And he told them not to make any noise. At one point, a daughter came to stay for a while, and he put the girls in a van. He chained them up and made them wear wigs and sunglasses in the driveway while he was conducting this visit with his child. He also left the keys to the van in the van. Wow. At that point, though, I mean, he told them not to talk, but the girls talked, and they were super scared. And they were like, I think that maybe one or two of them wanted to try for an escape, but they they were kind of talked out of it because, you know, this is a test. He's going to hurt us even worse if we actually do. And it would be several more years before they had another chance. They did not take this chance. But it sounds as though this was a pretty dark and hopeless existence for these three Mm -hmm. young girls. Amanda Berry's mom actually went on Montel. You remember the Montel show? I do remember the Montel show. Yeah, well, Sylvia Brown, the psychic, was on the show. Okay. And she was there with Amanda Berry's mom, and Sylvia Brown actually told her that her daughter was dead. Ugh. And as screwed up as this sounds, Amanda actually saw the episode while she was in in captivity. Oh, how horrible. And what's even more horrible is that she actually died before her daughter was freed. Her mom did? Yeah, her mom went to her death. Thinking that her daughter was dead. When oh she my wasn't. god, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, so it just, and I think this was one of the situations that really kind of broke Amanda. And she started talking to Castro at that point and getting comfort from him. She let him hug her, and it's her 20th birthday, and she's pregnant. Uh-uh. So she's developing sort of a maybe a Stockholm syndrome kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Who, who knows? I hesitate to say it's that, but. I think when you're deprived of all human contact except for that one person who feeds you and is responsible for every element of your existence, then you soften a little bit Mm -hmm. and you tend to forget about how much you hate that person when they're the only person that you're exposed to. Because you're completely reliant on them. yeah, Yeah, yeah. So she actually gives birth or goes into labor Christmas 2006. And Ariel Castro allows Michelle in to help with the birth but he threatens her that if the baby dies she'll die so uh, that's really interesting because she he abused michelle to the point where she lost all of her pregnancies and then Mm -hmm. tells her she has to successfully deliver this other baby that he allowed to um, be born wow because as i mentioned earlier michelle was the one that took the brunt of the Mm -hmm. abuse and Amanda actually, like, softened him a little bit by, like, leaning on him and hugging him and talking to him and, like, just sort of having more of a, I don't want to say traditional type relationship, but she was definitely closer with him than Michelle was. Yeah, maybe he had some sort of affection toward her after that. Yeah, it seems as though he did. Hmm. But he sat in a rocking chair reading a book about birth while they are going through this birthing process. And eventually the baby was born and they named her Jocelyn. And despite the fact that Michelle had not been allowed to keep any of her her pregnancies, she was actually allowed to keep the baby. Amanda was actually allowed to keep this little baby. And it actually looked like Castro, too. Oh, man. But when the baby was about two or three, Amanda's chains were removed because 
she started to ask questions and Castro wanted her to have a normal relationship with him and as much as much normalcy as possible. Okay. And according to the girls, Castro never laid a hand on the baby and he actually unexpectedly bonded with Jocelyn in a, in a very surprising way. He took her out to the park to play and went outside with her on many occasions. People in the neighborhood thought it was very strange that he had a baby that he yeah, took everywhere with a him. Bit. But he claimed that it was his girlfriend's baby and no one asked any questions. Mm. Always ask questions. Yeah. Um, when the baby was about five, Amanda got a classroom and different. she begged for different things to teach her daughter. And sort of, they covered up a boarded window and made it into like a, a chalkboard type of a thing and taught her. They created like a school type environment for this little girl. Wow. And... It's pretty obvious that this little girl, Jocelyn, was pretty much the only source of joy for these three girls during this period of time. Mm. She was what kept them going. Until May 6, 2013. This was a warm spring day, and six-year-old Jocelyn went downstairs and saw that Daddy was gone. And she went and reported it to her mom. She said, the car is gone. The room is unlocked for the first time in 10 years. Wow. So the only thing that is separating them from the outside is one last kind of security door. I think it's like, you know, those gated kind of metal doors that are on the outside of a, with, or with yeah, cars yeah, or yeah, something, yeah, yeah. like a security yeah. door. So it's not like the actual wood front door. It's like that last kind of like security Like a screen door, door but it's not screen. Between. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That was the last barrier keeping them from the mm. world, basically. And it's, it's padlocked. So, so is this like another test? Free, or... but yeah. yeah. So that's, I think, what all of them were thinking at that point. And so Amanda runs downstairs because she's the one that has her room unlocked at that point, too, because she's got her daughter mm-hmm. with her. And I think maybe... Maybe it was a test, but then maybe Ariel thought that because, you know, they had this relationship that she would never betray him and try to leave. Or maybe, oh, she, yeah. maybe he thought she loved him and all that gross maybe crap. Maybe she suckered him into trusting her. Exactly. So Angel Cordero and Charles Ramsey, which are Castro's neighbors, hear Amanda screaming from the door and come over to his house where they eventually help kick out the door and free Amanda. Wow. So Amanda and her daughter come crawling out of this door and they immediately call the police and she is telling them that she's the girl that's been on the news and she's terrified that Ariel Castro is going to come back. And right. Get me, the, get me the hell out of here. It's about 5.52 p.m. and people are out on the street, but she knows that she won't be safe until she is in police custody. So she is doing everything she can to tell them, hurry the heck up, yeah. get here and help me. Which I would be terrified, too. I wouldn't want to be anywhere near where he could come grab me and pull me back in. She had actually walked out of the house with her baby Jocelyn and told everyone that she could that there were two more girls stuck in the house. Because, as you know, he would separate them and lock them up Mm -hmm. in different rooms. But the police actually kick in the screen door and enter the house a few minutes later, where they find Michelle Knight and Gina de Jesus where they rescued these two girls as well, and they were very thin and pale and super scared. I mean, can you imagine? And it just looks like this little girl saved them. Yeah. And it was a super powerful moment. Because, like, she doesn't have the learned helplessness of the years in captivity. Yeah. Um, And the first thing they did when they were freed was to kiss the ground. Oh, my gosh. Which I I can't even imagine. Yeah. Um, before an ambulance came and took them all away. Michelle, in particular, though, was in very, very bad shape. They were all hospitalized, but Michelle actually had stomach problems and some internal bleeding, and she needed to be on serious antibiotics, but these didn't work at one point, and they told her... At some point in this process, they told her she had two days to live. Oh, my gosh. Because of the amount of damage that she had internally from all this abuse that she received from Castro... But eventually she did get better. Um, But in the meantime, though, Ariel Castro is still on the loose. And the police have put out an APB and telling everyone, hey, we're looking for this 52-year-old Hispanic male. They block off streets, especially the one surrounding the house, so that he can't return there. But they also know that because he won't return there, they've got to find him immediately. 
But shortly thereafter, they find him driving a Mazda Miata, and police make eye contact as he drives into a McDonald's. He does not say a word, because I'm pretty sure he probably knew he was guilty AF. But now they got him in custody that same day, May 6, 2013. And immediately they charge him with four counts of kidnapping, three counts of rape, and this was in on May 8th that they charged him. So they, they brought him in on the 6th, so they charged him on the 8th, which is pretty fast. Yeah. Um, and he's potentially going to get 10 years to life in the state of Ohio. His two brothers were actually taken in with him, too, initially, but it was determined that they had no involvement. Hmm. After the police took the house apart piece by piece, searching for everything and anything they can to get a conviction for this guy... And they find a letter from Castro while they're searching, which is a if I get caught type of a thing. Okay. I don't know if you remember that with O.J. Simpson, like if I did it. I actually I would read do it if it I did way. it. Yeah. So it's, I guess it's that kind of a thing. And he tries to excuse his behavior by saying he'd been abused as a child and that he had a sexual addiction and he didn't mean anything bad. So this is a handwritten confession letter, essentially, from him hmm. saying that. He's not really, and it's interesting because he's not really acknowledging any of his wrongdoing. He's basically just saying, I have all these problems. I didn't mean to do anything wrong. I was nice to them. The sex was consensual. I would never kidnap them. We, we were together as a family. I loved these. I, we were all had a better life together, and I gave them a better life than they would have otherwise had. We're all just one big happy family. That sounds like um, in the Colleen Stan or Colleen Stan story, when he's right? like, yeah, okay, I kidnapped her, but she stayed. She chose to yeah, stay the whole she time. wanted to be here. Yeah, that's disgusting. And, yeah. I never forced him to have sex. Right. He just min- minimized his own involvement in this in as many ways as he could, including for the termination of pregnancies. He claimed he never beat or hurt any of them. But Amanda Berry actually kept journals. Whoa. And they were very, very extensive. And she reported all the activities that had happened, every single rape, everything. Wow. So by July 17th, 2013, they have now upped his counts to 977 total charges. That's got to be like a record, right? I don't know. But, I mean, for that long of a period, 10 years, that's a lot of counts. Yeah. Um, They throw a plea deal out there, obviously, because he wants to avoid Mm -hmm. the death penalty. And the police don't, the prosecutor doesn't want to have to spend the the money that this is probably going to take to go to trial on this. He pleads guilty in exchange for life in prison plus 1,000 years. Wow. Which is a lot. All right. Especially for someone who did not necessarily, well... He terminated the pregnancy, so I guess that could be considered murder as well. Um, but in any case, he got life in prison plus 1,000 years. Michelle Knight was the only one to come to court to speak. She called him out. The other two, I get it. Yeah. Like, you're traumatized. You never want to see this person again. But Michelle felt like she needed to do this to, like, move on with her life and to be strong. But she told them that he was going to hell for eternity she showed him basically they didn't define her anymore and he no longer has control of her f you kind of a thing and props yeah, to her, her right props to her for like having the strength and the courage to go face him face to face and tell him off but one month and one day after all of this happens he commits suicide by hanging himself from a bedsheet in his prison cell <laughs> Some claim that maybe it was autoerotic asphyxiation and not hanging because he was a little on the freaky side, I guess. Okay. Um, There were also some falsified logs for checking on Castro while he was on suicide Mm -hmm. watch. They were supposed to be checking on him every 30 minutes, but they were like, "Mm, not going to do that and just let let him go. And that's when this whole thing happened. But... During this whole thing, he had forfeited his right to appeal and had also said that he wouldn't be able to profit from any of his crimes. He just claimed he was a good person and just addicted to sex and porn, which is so gross. Entirely, entirely different thing. Yeah. So (laughs) August 7th, 2013 was when the house was demolished. This house on, on Seymour Avenue. Michelle Knight was there mm. passing out yellow balloons for missing kids. She actually ended up becoming an advocate for missing kids. Um, and I'm going to kind of talk about just a second about what came out of this because okay. these girls, surprisingly, were just as resilient as you 
could ever imagine. Like I wouldn't, I mean, who knows what mm-hmm. I would do in their, their place, but Knight, Barry, and De Jesus released a video statement on July 9th, 2013, thanking the public for their support. Their attorneys claim they wanted to have some privacy and they don't really want to speak to the media yeah. at that point. That was pretty soon after it had happened. But the Cleveland Courage Fund set up a bank account to help the women in their transition to independent life and collected about $1.5 million at the time of the video's release. Before Barry's disappearance, her grandfather promised her a classic Chevrolet Monte Carlo built in the year she was born. Mm -hmm. He kept the car and gave it to her after her kidnapping. And this was like a big moment for her. And several local automotive shops offered to perform restoration for free. Michelle Knight discussed some of her ordeals in an interview with People magazine one year after the release, as well as her life leading up to the abduction. She has legally changed her name to Lily Rose Lee since then to try to distance herself from this and has also gotten several tattoos as Mm. her way of coping with all of this and to help herself heal. She revealed as well that her son was adopted by his foster parents that she has had been trying to get him back from when she was kidnapped. And she says that she wants to see him, but she doesn't want to bring him into the ordeal that she has had to deal with. So she plans to see him after he becomes an adult. So hmm. she's, she doesn't want to freak him out now because this is the only family that he's known from a very young age. She would also like to open a restaurant someday and dreamed of getting married, which she actually did in 2016. And she hopes to adopt children mm-hmm. because she is probably not going to be able to give birth on her own because of the abuse and torture that she suffered. Right. She currently wasn't... She's been kind of off and on about her contact with Barry and De Jesus, but basically claimed that she just wanted to get her life back on track and that she right. she kind of wanted to distance herself yeah. from those two. But I think I remember reading that. Did she also cut off contact with her family? I think she may have as well. It doesn't really say. Mm-hmm. She was the one, if you recall, that didn't really have a close relationship with her family anyway, and they yeah. were very abusive and just awful, awful, yeah. awful, awful with her. So I could see if she did that. That, that would make I sense. I think I remember reading that when this all, like, came through. Yeah. In the meantime, though, Barry and Jesus received honorary diplomas from John Marshall High School in 2015. Jesus says she's currently volunteering for the Amber Alert Committee, which is awesome. Oh, yeah. Because she's able to provide comfort to families of abducted children because she can show them, hey, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean your child is going to die. I, I came mm-hmm. back, and your daughter can, too. Yeah. She remains in very close contact with Knight and her family. And in February 2017, Barry joined the staff of WJW, which is Fox 8 in Cleveland, where she hosts short reoccurring segments when she talks about missing person cases. And she also does this to help families reunite with missing family members. And April 2019, Barry reunited with Charles Ramsey six years after her rescue at an interview that was broadcast on Fox 8. So... She kind of got together with her rescuer and thanked him mm-hmm. for helping her. As part of the plea bargain, when Castro was convicted, the house where he lived and held the woman captive was demolished, as I mentioned, August 7th, 2013. De Jesus's aunt was the one that got to begin the demolition with the swing of a crane. And the house has been completely blurred out on the street view of Google Maps oh. now. Interesting. Yeah. So, as I mentioned earlier, that there were theories that he had died of autoerotic asphyxiation. And those were actually created by the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction, which actually released a report suggesting that that's how he died. Oh. Which is super interesting. But consultants independently released other reports that said all available evidence points to suicide, including a shrine-like arrangement of family pictures and a Bible in his cell. And there was an increasing tone of frustration in his prison journal and the re- with the reality of spending the rest of his life in prison while subject to constant harassment. So because, as you know, guys like that in prison yeah. have, have a target on their back. Yeah. Um, so very, very interesting. It seems as though the girls have done everything in their power to number one, recover from all this and build their lives again. And number two, to help other people, mm-hmm. which is 
awesome and yeah. absolutely amazing that these girls who basically could just disappear from the public eye altogether and make their own lives, but instead they want to help other people yeah. from this experience, which is pretty awesome. I mean, unbelievable strength for all three of them. I just, I can't even imagine what something like that would do to you. It's not just being held in captivity for 10 years. It's being constantly and repeatedly subjected to abuse and violation of your person and privacy Mm -hmm. and being forced to shower with this person and being forced to be sexually tortured by him and then physically tortured as well and the mind games and yeah the psychological torture too yeah i just i can't even imagine trying to recover from something like that and how long it would take i mean just it's horrific but it's an interesting case and i i just for me in particular i find it very fascinating that people can get away with something like that and no one sees or suspects that they're doing something bad they're just these ordinary looking dudes on the outside and they're you know, he plays in a band and he has a job and like people just don't think they could be capable of doing something so horrific and not a lot of people obviously knew about his abuse of his former spouse and so right. it just it's astounding and it's never it's very very f- infrequently is it a case where they have no history of any kind of violence prior mm-hmm. and then they suddenly go abduct a girl and keep her for 20 years it's typically a, a history of abuse that sort of gets worse and worse and worse until they do something like this mm-hmm. yeah and it, it's not fair that he committed suicide it feels like he got the easy way out yeah. you know yeah and i'm sure that the girls think that too he should have had to spend the rest of his life mm-hmm. in captive in captivity exactly. losing that control of himself to punish him for that but i mean what can you do what exactly can you, do? you can't know. you know force him to stay alive but you know good riddance to bad rubbish whatever you want to call it but we're gonna go ahead and wrap the episode up for the day on that note and this is the point in the podcast where we say so long farewell please rate review and subscribe if you have any questions comments or suggestions please send us an email we're at the bfdpodcast at gmail.com we love hearing from you guys if you want to give us a show suggestion or correction or make it gentle please we're delicate no i'm just kidding (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh social media darcy yeah, we're at the BFD podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And we post pictures from these cases. I don't know about you, but I like to look at the person, see if I would suspect walking down the street that they were somebody who would do something like this. I like yeah, to see they pictures have, like, of black the victims, eyes. houses, yeah, all that kind of weird stuff. I'm, I'm into that. What can I say? Please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.